0: Oh, I've seen some scripts, I know the words weren't spelled, right? There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important.
1: Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too to read, Will. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character
2: till I've done a DVD commentary.
0: You want to eat the writer? Be my
2: guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is Billy Das, the Indie Dork. What's up, Billy?
1: Uh nothing. 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 Nothing at all. Nothing. Uh, a nothing few cool. things are nothing up.
2: Amazing. A few things are up. A couple of things <laughs> under this table are up because we are really, really excited to bring you this episode today. Joining us is the legendary Mick Garris.
1: I was pretty excited about this conversation. Oh my
2: god. This a little bit. This is huge. This is a huge moment. For Brad and Billy, and <laughs> I, I hope you listeners are as equally excited to partake in this conversation as we were. Uh, we went down to the Overlook Film Festival in New Orleans. This was our first time going to this particular festival. Yep. It was a seventeen-hour drive. Yeah. Oh my God.
1: I mean, the drive there felt like three hours. Sure, sure, sure. The drive back felt like seven days. Oh, it's it's (laughs) such a long drive back. I feel like we're
2: still on 81. Uh, But so, so worth it because we had many, many cool conversations uh, in New Orleans and I'm I am down to go back next year. Oh, absolutely! Uh, we saw a bunch of cool movies. We listened to a bunch of really rad uh, podcast recordings. We went to Grady Hendrix's Paperbacks from Hell mm-hmm. uh, performance, and it was a performance. Mm-hmm. We saw you know, like I said, a bunch of cool movies. You know, like Nightmare Cinema, the new film from Mick Garris, yep. which is. Coming soon this week, this Friday, you'll yeah. be able to watch it on demand. It's also playing in a few select theaters. So if it's near you, you're going to want to do that because it needs to be seen on the big screen.
1: Also, not for I think Psycho Cinema has a, a viewing at the Winchester Alamo schedule. So they, if you're they local to the Nova area, that's probably worth a drive.
2: Yeah. And I'll be there. And you want to meet me? So, and shake my hand because I'm almost as cool as Mick Garris. No, I'm not. No, no not, I'm not.
1: not remotely. Uh, <laughs> Me we, either,
2: though. We had this conversation on the second floor of the International House Hotel in uh, downtown New Orleans near the yeah. French Quarter. We were going to talk to him in the lobby of the hotel, but uh, I don't know if you knew this, guys, but New Orleans is a party town? Uh, wait, what? Yeah, uh, lots of drinking. And if there's a bar nearby, it's incredibly loud and not conducive to a podcast environment. So we were lucky enough to basically commandeer the second floor where yeah. they have their boardrooms and uh, suites. Nobody was up there. And we just set up the mobile podcast one oh, yeah. to chat with Mick Garris. And, and Mick's wife was there, too, uh, listening in on the conversation. And it was a thrill to talk to her as well.
1: Um, wow, I mean, this is a treat. Like, this is a real treat. He, you know, he talks about um, in the course of the conversation uh, the the uh, the stand, his miniseries, the stand, and that's like that's my because like, we watched that as a family when I was a kid, and I'm, I'm re-watching it right now uh, after we got home. The first thing I did when I got home was watch Critters 2. Yeah, right, uh, choice, and, right choice, right choice. <laughs> and then uh, the second thing, as soon as my wife got back, she was on vacation uh, while, while we were down at the Overlook Film Festival, is we started uh, re-watching the Stan miniseries together, and it's it holds up. I'm enjoying it.
2: Uh, Critters 2 was the first film of mix that I ever saw. I. Fell in love immediately. I was, of course, a fan of the original film. And Critters 2 does something different than the original. Uh, I I, I think it's a a delicious sequel. (laughs) And uh, I'm a big, big supporter and fan of Sleepwalkers. Sure. Uh, I love that movie. Shout Factory put out a great Blu-ray of it. Highly recommend you seeking it out. Uh, And and don't worry We talk critters too In this conversation (laughs) So let's get to it And we'll meet you back On the other side And yeah This is This is really special Yeah Mick uh, thank you so much for joining us today here. In My pleasure. Overlook Hotel, uh, yeah. Overlook Hotel. Overlook Film enough. Festival. <laughs> Close I enough. wish yeah. we were at the uh, Stanley when they were having it there. I
0: missed it was that. pretty amazing yeah. having shot the mini series of The Shining there. It was the first time I'd been back there since shooting there, and it was quite a quite an experience.
2: Surreal, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, one shooting there, then returning there, and yeah. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you're really proud of this movie. You're super excited to be showing it here at the festival. I really am. Why, you know, where does that pride come from? Where does that excitement come from? Well, excuse me the sin of pride, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, it really comes from being able to exercise the same philosophy that we did on Masters of Horror, <clears throat> get great filmmakers, this time from around the world, and give them a platform, not much money, but a complete creative freedom to do whatever they want. Mm. We did it on a very tight budget, but uh, hopefully it doesn't show. Uh, and we got great people, and they did really wonderful films, and and it all tied together really well. We've been taking it around the world for almost a year now, right. uh, at festivals and the like, and it's been very well received, and now we're finally going to release it in theaters and VOD uh, in June on the 21st. Uh,
2: Masters of Horror... I guess it's been a little while. And I, well, I know it's been a little while because I've been eagerly waiting more type <laughs> of that content. I mean, yeah. there was, it was such a rare, you know, uh, 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 such a rare platform for filmmakers. Nobody done it before that I
0: know of yeah. other than my first job was on Amazing Stories as a writer. And Spielberg really encouraged really great filmmakers to do it their way Mm -hmm. and you know doing it in the horror field was something really different you don't want to do tales from the crypt all had a similar style They, they had a range but it was the boobs and blood show and you know you got great people doing them but it was to try and capture that ec kind of quality in this uh, with Masters of Horror and the same philosophy behind Nightmare Cinema is get these filmmakers and set them free and let the inmates run the asylum mm-hmm. and not worry about stylistic uh, similarities. Encourage them to be different. In Nightmare Cinema, David Slade's is in black and white. Mm-hmm. And every one of them has a completely different cinematic personality, and it's a great opportunity to be a cheerleader. You know, my job as a producer is to get these people to be happy with what they're doing and and proud of what they're doing and and do something special that's not just a gig Mm
2: -hmm. well i mean you've always been a celebrator you know a passionate (laughs) cheerleader yeah 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 no (laughs) cheerleader that's
1: a non-cynical assessment by the way (laughs) okay it's totally like
2: you know post-mortem i mean you sit down and you do what we would like to be doing you know, talking you are doing yeah great filmmakers well maybe you're not this time (laughs) (laughs) no 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 um but like where does that where does that come from where do, like how do you translate your enthusiasm for an art form and then you know becoming a filmmaker and then continuing to still to interview people yeah, this, and, yeah. To, to, to to point out what you're excited about and what others should be excited about Well, I I
0: never meant to be a horror evangelist. Mm, Yeah, there you go, that's a good word. Or the ambassador of (laughs) horror, you know. (laughs) But uh, just, I love what I do. I've been a fan of the genre, you know. I I don't make horror movies because I think that's going to make money. Mm -hmm. I make them Mm -hmm. because I think they're important, and I think that that's where the most creative filmmaking can be found mm. in in most decades. You have boundaries broken and new cinematic language created in the horror genre that you can't in a more grounded uh, atmosphere mm-hmm. or genre. You know, you can have a great drama... And the filmmaking can just be a matter of beautiful photography capturing what's going on between the characters and the actors on screen.
2: It always seems like people are rediscovering horror, like oh now we're in a renaissance, we're in a renaissance. Yeah. So it's like I hear horror renaissance like every five years, if not every two years. But
0: thank goodness, yeah. I, I, you know, I accept that as a good thing mm-hmm. because. Th- it always comes back, mm-hmm. you know, like the living dead depicted in the movies, <laughs> you know, the horror genre. It dies out in popularity, but eventually it's going to revive. And usually it's revived with something really new and fresh and different, you know, and like you say, probably every five years is a good uh, cycle, mm-hmm. um, a good example. But, You know, I just, I I love the cinematic opportunities. I love stories that get so personal that they go beyond Mm -hmm. the external and go to the internal. And Mm -hmm. the things that share me, hopefully will share, uh, or scare me, will hopefully scare you when I share it with you and get under your skin. You know, people have different fears, but the root of those fears all come from the
2: same place. Mm. So besides... You know, budget. I mean, I don't think *Matches of Horror* was a particularly extravagant show. It was definitely not. It was less than than most uh, network TV series. So now, trying to bring that sensibility to nightmare cinema. What has changed, or you know, philosophically or practically?
0: Well, the philosophy is the same. Mm-hmm. The practicalities are different. You know, we shot uh, Masters of Horror on thirty-five millimeter film, other than one of Joe Dante's episodes, which was digital. This is obviously all digital. Um, we shot it in Los Angeles, which in Masters of Horror were all shot in Vancouver, except for the two in Japan. Hmm. And uh, they were done even more scrappily. We had a lot more uh, favors filled. KNB came in and did amazing um, makeup effects work, as well as Vincent Van Dyke. Um, We had visual effects people who came in and rescued us when the original company that we had hired took half the money and never gave us any shots. And we just got screwed. And so really good friends came to the rescue uh, and lost money by by doing work, really exceptional work for us on our scrappy little movie. You know, we would, during the post-production process, we'd have to shut down for a while because of funding issues that had to be solved. And then a month later, we'd come back to work and, and all that. So this was really much more independent than doing a, a Showtime series, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. and you're gathering these particular five, you know, filmmakers. My uh, first
0: choice. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> they, yeah. Seriously, they were, but. Mm. but But the philosophy is a little different in that I wanted this to be international. Hmm. My original concept for it was to do an hourly series and each one in a different country with a different filmmaker from that country. But um, the television business is not as ambitious as I am. (laughs) And uh, so we weren't able to do that. But, you know, these were people I had known whose work I really admired, each of whom had a very specific... Cinematic personality. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at a Joe Dante movie and you recognize it. And yeah. David Slade brings something completely different to it. Um, you know, Alejandro Brugués is, is hilarious. If you've ever seen Juan of the Dead, yeah. it captures that personality perfectly. Ryuhei Kitamura's is so over the top, crazy, and bloodletting. Like I never imagined we would get an R rating the first time through because of his <laughs> sex, but we did. Yeah. Yeah. And then mine is more kind of an emo horror ghost story and so just they're all very different from each other but they're kind of wrapped together by the mickey rourke sequences at the nightmare cinema itself
2: and so is it just a process of like okay well we've now all assembled you know for this product uh you go do your thing, you go do your thing, I go do my thing? And that's that's how it went? Or Pretty
0: much. We would do them one after the other, uh-huh. scheduled back-to-back, except for David Slade's, because he was off in England doing Bandersnatch for Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. And so we had to put it off for a while and then bring the band back together mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. do that. And some of the crew members changed. But for the most part, um, yeah, we did them back-to-back the way we did Masters of Horror, but uh, on a, a tighter schedule. We basically did a movie of five stories mm-hmm. for uh, in the the time you would get for a very independent movie <laughs> but, but the production values and everything these are filmmakers that I could trust to be great mm-hmm. and and my job as a producer was just to be a cheerleader and and encourage them and if there were issues brought about by well we can't afford to do it this way what about trying
2: this way but But for you as a filmmaker bringing your story in, is there, was this a story that you've always wanted to tell and just works for this format? Or did you go, okay, I'm making nightmare cinema, I need to come up with the perfect story for this anthology film. Well,
0: to tell you the truth, I conceived of the story of dead as season three of masters of Mm. horror, Mm. an hour long version. And I actually wrote the script before we got a green light for season three. And we never did get a green light for season (laughs) three. Um, and then when that didn't happen, I thought, this is a feature, and I rewrote it as a 90-minute feature. But it got very close to being made several times, but ultimately, it never did. And I had written an entirely different story for uh, Nightmare Cinema, uh, based on one of my books called Tyler's Third Act. And I'd written the script, and that was one of the five scripts. And then the producers had read Dead, and they said, "Well, you, hang on a sec we really like this. Do you think you could put that in a trash compactor and, and bring it down to short size? And and I didn't know at first, but ultimately thought, you know, this is a great challenge, and mm, let's see. And, and I did it, and... You know, now I can't even remember the 60 pages that weren't in the Nightmare really? Cinema version. Really? Yeah. So it was a story I'd really wanted to tell for a long time, but one that uh, I didn't intend for this, but it became
2: that. Now I'm very happy that I did it that way. So the emotional experience of having something that you were hoping that was going to be part of season three. Yeah. Then being denied that, and then wanting to make it a feature, and then being trying to f- work the puzzle of bring, bringing it down to a shorter segment. You know what? What's the you've got? To, that's got to be part of why you, you're feeling so positive about Nightmare Cinema. Well,
0: it's whiplash. Yeah, you no, know, it yeah, is. Exactly. It is creative whiplash. But at a certain point, I, you know, I've been doing this for thirty years now uh, as a writer and as a director and the like, and most of what you write never gets made. Mm -hmm. And you get so close and things that get started and then abandoned where you think you've got a green light and that green light is flashing and then it turns yellow and then it turns red. Mm -hmm. Um, So the emotional whiplash is such that I I don't ever want to become cynical about the whole business and Mm -hmm. expect the worst, Mm -hmm. but to when something doesn't work out, you can't let it devastate you either. Mm. You just keep moving forward like a shark that has to keep swimming mm. or die, you know? Mm. Um, so the, the fact that I had the opportunity to make this years after I conceived it far outweighed all the grief of having it fall
1: apart as masters of horror and then fall apart as a feature, do you, do you find the creative process, uh, as, as you engage and disengage and engage, do you like? Do you find the act of continuing to work at it like that, do you find that restorative, or, or is it a drain and you have to seek restoration elsewhere? <laughs> well, I love the
0: process of making films, and I love... But, you know, you don't get to make films back-to-back unless you are, you know, making Marvel movies that mm, sure. gross a, a billion dollars. Right. So... Um, I write books, I do the podcast, you know, I, 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 do lots of things as well. And I travel a lot to film festivals and things. So all of those things are restorative. Um, I never finish a project and say, oh, I don't want to do another one of those for mm-hmm. a while. And I never knew that I would enjoy directing episodes of other people's TV shows. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do it for years. And then I did an episode of Pretty Little Liars and I'm in and out in three weeks. I'm working with a bunch of wonderful actors and these producers and writers and crew on, a, on the Warner Brothers lot. And it's like, this is thrilling. This is great. And I don't have the response. Responsibility. I do my job, but I don't have to worry about what a producer worries about. And it's part of a TV machine. But, you know, some of the best experiences I've ever had as a director I did an episode of Once Upon a Time. It has the most emotional scene I've ever directed in my mm-hmm. career. And this is in a fairy tale Disney show, mm-hmm. but it was so potent. And and I realized that I just love making films and telling stories and and getting the opportunity in my gray years continually mm-hmm. still having a career when so many of my peers don't you know it's it's thrilling to me and, I, and every day I wake up feeling lucky you
2: know um, what was the when you started to do more television what like what finally got you over that hurdle of Well, I'm, you know, this is just not what I wanted. This is not what I imagined doing. Well, you know, it was, I wasn't getting a movie off
0: the ground Uh or things that I had written that, you know, sometimes it's years before anything gets moving and I'll write a book or something. And then I was asked to meet with the people at, at Pretty Little Liars. And they're huge Stephen King fans and huge Alfred Hitchcock fans, and they were subverting teenage audiences mm. into loving Stephen King and Alfred Hitchcock style thrillers and horror, and and I did an episode of that, and I had a really good time with it, and realized filmmaking is filmmaking, storytelling mm. is storytelling, mm. and um, I'm there as a guest. A, an actor gets hired to play a part and a director on a television series is like a, a special guest and uh, and in my case I, and i don't know if it's this way with everybody they never told me how to do it they didn't say we use these lenses we do this kind of camera work they encouraged me to do what i do and and it was so fun, and being in and out in three or four weeks was, this is really, you know, I enjoy this. And, and that first one... I had done one years ago, uh, an episode of New York Undercover, because it was the producer who worked with me on the stand. And he asked me to do one, and I thought it sounded like fun. And then my own shows, you know, that's that's different. But um, doing that, it was a revelation to me. And I haven't done any in a couple of years, mm-hmm. but but it was a revelation that um, it's still a filmmaking process. and television now is more cinematic than it's ever been and it's not it used to be that a tv director was a traffic cop yeah that he was not somebody called upon to bring out the most creative sensibilities possible in the storytelling and it's different these days And, and i i discovered that and i reveled in
2: it well like what what is a movie now You know, there's so much conversation around that now with like streaming services and what have you. Do they get Oscars if they only stream? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And it's like, well, isn't a movie a movie is a movie? And like, I'm getting tired of those conversations. I just want to enjoy the. The entertainment. Well, I I get both sides of the argument because
0: a movie is a movie, and most people for decades have mostly consumed their feature films on the small screen, Mm -hmm, on television, and you know the last decade or so on their iPads and (laughs) things like that. Uh, It's still they consume it the same way, but there's something special about movies screening in movie theaters and the Motion Picture Academy is about movies. I understand what Spielberg is all mm-hmm. about and sure. not wanting that. But Netflix is offering opportunities for filmmakers that wouldn't otherwise exist. You know, you, you would not have the perfection. Uh, right. You wouldn't see it. It would be lost at Cannes or something if Netflix hadn't picked it up and you couldn't stream it that way. And, that's an important consideration, and and so it's easy to see both sides. And in fact, in a way, in a secret way, Nightmare Cinema is about that. Mm. It's set the surrounding stories. It's set in an, an abandoned, haunted movie theater. Mm. The Projectionist. The Projectionist Mickey Rourke, and and the whole thing is cinema is dying Mm -hmm. in so many ways all around the world movie theaters are closing and closing and closing um fortunately there are tentpole movies that keep it going but they're all the same you know you're getting they're more theme park rides Mm -hmm. than they are movies and and the better stories are being told on television or on the streaming services
2: so it, it is hard to differentiate But when you complete a film like Nightmare Cinema and now you've been touring with it for a year plus and, you know, you're really just ramping up to the release of the film, Uh, you know, it's on you, the filmmaker, to really sell your movie once it's done because you could, you know, it could find distribution, but it could also just disappear on Netflix. Yes and wherever. no. I'm not a very good businessman. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but I have passion for what I do mm-hmm. and being able to share it with you guys, you know, it's a great opportunity and to be going to these festivals and and it's quite a crowd-pleasing film, you know, being in the audiences in different countries around the world and and having people respond the way they have, it's really great and I'm glad there are people who are in this business who do the marketing business of selling a movie because I can talk about it and I can share my enthusiasm for it. And I used to be a publicist back in the 80s, you know, in 1981, I was working at the PMK public relations firm, but, um, I'm uncomfortable selling my own stuff, but I'm more than comfortable sharing my enthusiasm for Mm -hmm. something I'm proud of. Mm -hmm. And it's not just proud of my movie. I've got four partners in this who are filmmakers that did amazing work under, you know, not the most luxurious circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so it's really easy to be proud of a movie that's not just about your own ego, but you were able to, you know, on Masters of Horror. I got Clive Barker stories. I got John Carpenter directing two of them. Mm -hmm. I had Dario Argento and Mm -hmm. Toby Hooper. And we didn't get George Romero and Wes Craven, but we would have, but the timing was wrong. So, you know, being a cheerleader is easy when when you're working with people whose work is Mm. is so exciting
2: what i find is as a a fan of horror a fan of cinema a podcast like postmortem and what we're trying to do here on in the mouth of Darkness, you in hearing a person's tale on how they got their their pro- their film out there their story out there is incredibly inspiring yeah and i mean h- how has postmortem changed you as a filmmaker being the host of that show it i learned something from everyone directors don't learn uh, don't work
0: together mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons i like to have cameos from directors because we share a set for a time and mm-hmm. and it's fun but um the opportunity to see... Everybody works differently. There's no real way... There's no right way to direct a movie. And because no directors work together, they're not really familiar with how uh, other directors work. And just... Hearing the philosophy, hearing the difference between what Peter Medak does and how he makes a movie and Ari Aster or discovering somebody like Coralie Fargia, who Mm -hmm. did Revenge. Hell yes. You know, that's a filmmaking masterpiece. And it was her first time out as a feature film director. I learned a lot from that uh, and just how everybody was brought up differently what their family life life was like as children what they read what they read hmm. do they read <laughs> you know they all come from different places and yet there's a commonality there there's a shared bond of kind of the outsider when when during youth you know i was not a prom king <laughs> when i was in high school and most of the people i know who are fans as well as the people who make this stuff, they it, it, they weren't the popular people. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, that commonality was something that was not surprising, but fascinating, mm. you know?
1: We were uh, talking earlier today with Larry Fessenden about just the value of outsider art and sort of the, like... The you know Larry's point was you know embracing art that's frayed around the edges, which were mm. his words, right? Um, but I think we're great. But right, uh, something you know. not polished and slick and right. meant for easy. But it's freeing and it opens yeah. you up to the opportunity to do things that um, sensible people might tell you not to, uh, <laughs> or might not offer you money to do. But that there's magic uh, to to be had out there, and and to to go out and find these opportunities to kind of just just make it anyway, just just. Do well, the, the stuff that sticks with you the longest is the stuff you haven't seen before and exactly. the stuff that doesn't play by the
0: rules and isn't part of, is not conjuring six. You know, the things you <laughs> you that stay with you are the things that surprise you and are outlaw cinema, if you will, or books or television or music. You know, there's such a parallel between horror films and you know, metal music or something that you want to embrace things your mother's not going (laughs) to like, you know? And I think that's an important part of of what bonds us together. They don't have western conventions, they don't have romance conventions, they don't have film festivals for dramas and comedies, but they do for horror, Mm -hmm. and they have for decades.
2: Yeah, and horror... You know, you come to the Overlook and you, you realize that horror is just this huge label. Like, there's so much variety within yeah. that. And what Masters of Horror showed also was that you can have, like, every flavor of movie in in this genre. And that was the intent, that... Horror is a huge umbrella, Mm -hmm.
0: and you know we're trying to do that. There's five stories in Nightmare Cinema. One of them's hilariously funny. One is a wry satire. One is just very spacey and odd, and and it creeps up on you and really is disturbing. One is just gleefully sanguinary, (laughs) Uh, and and then one is kind of really um, emotional and scary on a on an internal level. So. it, it's all horror, and it all comes from the same place, but is in, expressed in entirely different ways. And, and I love that horror can
2: be all those things. And there's always a hunger for an anthology film, but at the same I hope time... So. <laughs> oh, no, there is, there is. But whenever you have an anthology film, there's you, know, you read a review of any anthology film, it's always like, well, some, it's a mixed bag, and yeah, you always open yeah. yourself up to that.
0: Well, it's true, but the chances are with five stories, especially from filmmakers who've proven themselves in the past, mm. Mm-hmm. The chances are the batting average is going to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the anthologies, a lot of the filmmakers are first timers, or mm-hmm. they've only made shorts, or and and it's great. But you know, I think one thing we have going for us is that these are, are veteran filmmakers who've been there before and and have experience under their belt. Um, certainly, it helped production in that regard. Mm-hmm. But it's also guys that. I would trust any one of them. I would go see any one of their films anyway. Mm -hmm. And here, we're all doing it together.
1: Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot of the success of the ability to bring veteran filmmakers together comes from kind of a sense of community. And I mean, obviously, if you're if you're talking to filmmakers, and you know, you're trying to be a, a cheerleader or, or or however you want to describe it, um, there's some sense of value to that community. I'm I'm kind of curious, you know, as as a creator and a filmmaker, does fostering that sense of community drive you? Like, is is that an arching goal for Nightmare Cinema? Well, I kind of did that with a series of dinners that led to Masters yeah. of Horror
0: in the first place, and. We do run into each other at festivals like this or conventions or at the Directors Guild meetings or dinners or things like that. And there would always be one or two of us who say, you know, we all ought to have a dinner sometime and get together and, you know, just do that for fun. And I realized nobody was going to do that. And I thought, this is worth doing. Let's try it. And we put one together, and it was 12 people. It was me and John Landis and Wes Craven and Stuart Gordon and John Carpenter and Toby Hooper, and it was like a dozen people got together, and and, and Guillermo del Toro, who named us. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, but, uh, you know, it was, we really had a good time. It doesn't mean we get together and talk about horror movies, but... We are guys who all have the same job and different approaches and the like. It was a social thing, and it was so much fun that we started doing it every couple of months and and it kept growing and growing and growing. And so this sense of community is really strong there and it's it's really emotional. Some of these dinners, I mean everybody there is a a brotherhood sisterhood there that you don't find outside this genre. You know, there there are plenty of filmmakers who get together socially or whatever, but, but we're the underdogs, you know, yeah. we're the gutter snipes <laughs> and we're the ones used to getting kicked into the curb. But there's a unity in this. And now with horror being more, more successful than ever, mainstream television is filled with horror series and the like. You know, it's it's sort of the revenge of the nerds, but but um, you know, it's something that really brings us together. The outsiders are brought together by these festivals, by these conventions and the like, and and so yeah, it, it really is a sense of unity that that I felt from my friends in the genre and and help spread that when we started doing the dinners. And the those, most recent ones we did, there were
2: 35 oh, horror directors. Yeah, in, yeah. In And I want room. them all recorded. You should yeah. make that a whole episode. I'd like no. that. No, <laughs> one of the
0: reasons we do it is well, because it's private.
2: Of course, but <laughs> it does help. <laughs> as a fan, knowing about those dinners is always like, oh my gosh, what's set at those tables? And I you know, you get the photos and it's really fascinating, but really you bring an element of that experience with you in postmortem yeah
0: i did yeah. it wasn't intended that yeah. way but you know postmortem is kind of selfish because i get people on who i'm interested in finding mm-hmm. stuff yes. out about
1: yes well, you know we know understand,
2: we understand that <laughs>
0: <selfish>. <laughs> but i've been doing it since i was a teenager the first guy i interviewed when i was in high school was ray bradbury and the mm. second was rod serling mm. then i became a music journalist and interviewed you know a lot of dead rock stars but i've always had a curiosity about the creative process and being in a very specific genre if you have success in that genre as a filmmaker you're rarely let out of horror jail mm-hmm. you have to stay there now i respect the world of horror <clears throat> i know that 90% of it is shit mm-hmm. but that 10% is better than anything yeah and i uh, you know I love that, and and I am happy to be an evangelist when it comes to such a potentially imaginative genre. You know, all of the franchise horror films, I think, are kind of the nadir of of horror movies and what makes them great. It's great that they're successful enough to allow horror filmmakers to make these films and the like, and, and that you can say... I'm a horror director at, with pride and, <laughs> and and all that. But they they definitely kind of kick the stuffing out of the more outre and more original horror films that could be made that you see here at this festival mm-hmm. that you'll never see anywhere else.
2: Right. Yeah. You do, um, you know, with social media and with your podcast, I mean, you know, you know, you have Ask Mick Anything. You <laughs> really give of yourself and you open yourself up to you know, your whole fan base, um, you know, is is there a, a, a danger to that or, like, an anxiety around that, or is it just... I haven't had anybody mess with me <laughs> in
0: <laughs> ways that... Not even but, necessarily like that, but, I mean, like... Well, it's, do, it's do it's I so feel exposed? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I think part of the creative process to do it successfully is to allow yourself to be exposed Mm -hmm. to a certain degree. You know, I want my private life private. Sure, But the work that I do is meant for public consumption. Mm. And if you do work for public consumption, you are open to criticism, you know, and Mm. all. But, um, you know, I... I also like giving back, you know, coming to these festivals, and and I I rarely do conventions, but the ones that I do, uh, I enjoy being able to talk with people and and all, but um, I don't feel a need to put up a wall around me in that regard, you know, when it comes to the work that I do. I like being accessible. Well, as now a fan, th- hopefully this doesn't dig me a grave. No, right
2: no, now, no, but- <laughs> no. Well, we appreciate it. Uh, we're hitting the mark, Billy. Do you want to ask your question? Sure. Yeah. Oh, uh, a
0: dangerous it, question
2: it, to end al- with. We, <laughs> we always have a question.
1: So, no, um, you know, um, through this podcast and through writing for film school rejects we've had we've been very blessed with the opportunity to interview a number of filmmakers creators people are putting themselves out in the world and exposing themselves and i think the one through line through all of that is you know making a movie is just really fucking hard um and it's it's easy for things to go wrong and i think it's very easy for you to feel uh lowly when they don't work out and so we always like to end the conversations on a positive note okay um if you what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you and go no uh <laughs> no, it's um, it's um. Is there a moment that you look back in your career uh, that you uh, used to buoy you in low times? That's something that that sa- you allows you to say to yourself. You know, this has really been worth it. There are a bunch of them.
0: You know, there there have been really crushing experiences, you know, riding the bullet is the most personal mm-hmm. thing that I've ever made, and it was a complete and utter disaster, critically as well as commercially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there are those who embraced it and, and got it and all, but in general, it was not particularly well-received. Um what happened with masters of horror when it became fear itself and and throughout all of the 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 intent the the philosophy of great filmmakers getting their opportunity to make their movies their way without interruption or commercials or anything when it became fear itself you know it was like having my baby kidnapped and raped mm-hmm. but the stand was the most successful miniseries in history. Mm-hmm. You know, fifty million people a night watched it four nights in a row, and it went up every night of the four—not all in a row—but mm-hmm. but to be able and. If I meet any female from 5 to 50 and they find out I wrote Hocus Pocus,
2: <laughs> yep.
0: I'm their best
1: friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: Including my wife, Lisa. Uh, also, yes, also my wife. So, <laughs> yes, yes. Give yes, them yes. my regards. I I,
1: I'm also a fan of Hocus Pocus, though. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, I mean, there are
0: things like that that, you know, you realize. Uh, you'll, I'll be sitting in a restaurant and hear somebody talking about something that I made. And, you know, it can be something really... Critters 2 was my first movie. It's way more popular now than when it was released. It was a total flop when it
2: came out. I saw it in the theater with my dad. And you were the only ones in it. It was pretty quiet. But but (laughs) I adored Critters 2 from the moment. I remember having Uh, such a argument with my dad about it because he was just not into it well uh, fuck your dad exactly. <laughs> i'm i'm quoting that and i'm sending it to him in a text yeah. <laughs> but he was that antagonist you know you're like you, you know you have to have art that your parents wouldn't like, like yeah that's yeah. what it was for me certainly. that's important yeah. you
0: know to break away but but to know that i made things that connected with people and even writing the bullet sometimes i'll get a a, a message on facebook or or something where somebody had lost their mother and they'd seen that film, Mm -hmm. which is about that, and and it meant a lot to them, and they had the same emotional response to it that I had when I was making it. Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. Again, it's doing work for public consumption, and when the public feeds it back in a positive way, it makes it all worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Everything that's difficult was worth it, and everything that didn't work was worth it because of the ones that do. I think that's an awesome answer. That's an awesome answer.
2: <laughs> Mick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, pleasure. We're excited for Nightmare Cinema tonight. We're excited yep. for our listeners to find Nightmare Cinema in their lives. Where can we point them to? Obviously, postmortem. but right. where should we point our, our listeners to? Okay, well, uh,
0: writing the bullet, I mean, <laughs> writing the bullet, Nightmare <laughs> Cinema will be in limited theaters, uh, and on VOD everywhere, uh, on June 21st. And, um, I've got a new book that'll be out later this year. Actually, (laughs) there's a coffee table biography of me coming out this fall. Really? Yeah. It's like, I don't know who's going to buy it. My mother's dead. So, uh, but Abby Bernstein wrote, wrote this book and it's pretty exhaustive and, and it'll be out this fall. And, it's a very weird feeling that somebody has done that about my professional life. So, so there's always stuff going on. The, the postmortem podcast is something that, that I, I, I really enjoy and put out there. So there's a lot of stuff out there, and there will be more coming.
2: All right. We're excited. Great. Thank, Thank you, you so much. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and there you go. Whoa. Whoa
1: What was your favorite part Of that conversation Uh
2: Him telling my dad To fuck off How could it not be (laughs) (laughs) Oh I am going to Make a soundbite of that And send it to my father Uh Really really delightful In all serious though My dad continued To take me to all these Movies that he hated And I really appreciate My dad for doing that But man He could not handle Movies like Critters 2 Uh So yes My thanks to Mick For telling him to Fuck off (laughs) What was your favorite part Billy. Oh, the part where he told your dad to fuck off.
1: <laughs> 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 I don't know, but by all accounts is a very sweet man. So uh, yeah, that was delightful. <laughs>
2: yeah. uh, I mean, once again, thank you to Mick Garris for coming on the show. Uh, it, it really was a, a, a dream come true. We've been having so many rad conversations and having opportunities to speak to, to filmmakers that generally had an impact in our growth as Children, let alone moviegoers. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the stand and, and critters too. And hocus pocus for you. I love Hocus Pocus. I still haven't watched Hocus I mean, Pocus. That,
1: like it's not okay that you haven't watched that movie. I but we, I get it. I get like, your your aversion to kids' movies in general. So Lisa loves it.
2: Lisa it. really right. does love it. But I need I need to get to it. I need but to like, get to I it. I
1: have images like Matt Frewer in my head when I picture him is in his, his red vest costume from the stand that he's wearing. Trash can man. Trash can man. And I didn't for a a long time I didn't realize until this rewatch I was like why do I see that in my head is it from uh, uh the honey I struck the kids or something but no he's wearing a tan vest in that oh, uh, okay so it's, I don't know man but like it's they, these are the guys that sort of they, they got in our heads yeah and, for sure and,
2: yeah. for sure so go see nightmare cinema uh Come by the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia. Yeah. Watch it with Brad. Billy, are you gonna be there? I'm putting I, you on I'm the spot.
1: Go, I'm gonna try. Oh, you're trying. I'm gonna huh? try.
2: That means he's not coming, listeners. <laughs> Bombard his social media. Force him to come.
1: Uh
2: all right. Okay, so next
1: week. Wait, oh, the oh, if, oh, oh, you, if, oh. if you haven't listened to his postmortem podcast, mm. um I would recommend his interview with Corly Farjeet. I think that that's a great conversation about a really interesting movie, um, and a good insight into kind of what that whole podcast is about for him. Uh
2: you should definitely be listening to post <laughs> postpartum. Uh
1: that's a different podcast. That's a different podcast. an essential conversation, <laughs> but uh not not really what uh, Mick is getting into.
2: You should listen to post why do I keep wanting to say postpartum? <laughs> you should listen to postmortem because not only does he have rad guests like Billy's saying, but I mean, yeah, yeah hold on. I've totally messed myself up. He just had Stephen King on. That's what I'm saying. He had Stephen King on. Every week, there's a really cool conversation on there. He's showing It Mod how it's done, and we are chasing what he is doing over there at Fangoria. It's incredibly cool. And I am there every week. It's appointment podcast listening.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So next week, next week, next week, we are continuing our conversations out of the Overlook Film Festival. We will be talking to Grady Hendrix, author of Paperbacks from Hell, and we're going to be talking specifically about his presentation that he kicked off at this festival, Paperbacks from
1: Hell 2, where he focuses on YA horror pre-Harry Potter. It's amazing. It's amazing. Go to his webpage, find out where he's doing this show next, and drive to there.
2: Yes, because that's what we did.
1: Yes, that's actually what we did. I mean, and if we can drive 17 hours to go see this, I think you can drive an hour or two to go find him. And
2: you told me that we have to go to the Overlook Film Festival because Grady Hendrix was going to be there, yeah. kicking it off with Paperbacks from Hell. Yeah. So he's a big reason as to why we drove 17 yeah. hours. And no joke.
1: I mean, that's, yeah, no, like, really no joke. I, I When we went to the Chattanooga Film Festival, um, Bex Feldman, who's The PR person there uh, took us aside and said, hey, are you guys going to go see Grady Hendrix's paperbacks from Hell performance? And I was like, what is that? Because I didn't realize that that was a performance thing that he was doing. And it was by far the best thing that I sat in on at Chattanooga. And to find out he was doing a sequel to it was like... Yeah, we gotta to drive to the Overlook Sure, 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 sure There was a whole bunch of other cool shit that we did there But man, that was a selling point for me
2: But let's say you don't have a performance of Grady Hendrix's In your neck of the woods mm. uh, Jump on Amazon or your favorite bookseller uh, You know, Barnes & Noble mm. you, know, you could shop there They could use your help uh, And grab paperbacks from hell from them And give it a read. It is well worth it.
1: And be prepared, too, you know, once you read that book or see that performance, uh, to go and have an insane need to drive to your nearest used book retailer and do a deep dive into titles that he's mentioned. Because the third thing that I did when I got home from the Overlook Film Festival was go to McKay's and buy about 12 Christopher Pike books.
2: Well, on the next episode, Billy, I want to talk about that selection that you purchased. Oh,
1: absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Until then, Billy, where can our listeners find you online? Sure. You can find me at WBDAS On Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd And you can also find me as the co-host Of Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures Where I am working with my nine-year-old Daughter to expand her cinematic horizon
2: And you can follow our other Dorks at ItModCast on Instagram and Twitter, you can follow them Darren Smith at the Disco Dork, Brian Young at the Turtle Dork, Lisa Gullickson at Sidewalk Siren, and you can follow me on all social medias at Mouth Dork. And head on over to Film School Rejects, where Billy and I mm-hmm. have been writing up these conversations, mm-hmm. uh, doing a little mini essays uh, 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 about our time at the Overlook. We have one already up on Mick Garris and Grady Hendrix, and we'll be having others uh, in the coming weeks those, as well. Those two are real good, Brad. You yeah. do a good job. Oh, thank you, Billy. Yeah. Affirm
1: affirmation. I need it. Hey, I we need we it. all need. Validation. That's, and speaking of, find us on the social medias and validate us. Tell us how much you love us. Yeah, we love write a review on
2: iTunes. Oh, that would be great. We could definitely <laughs> use a few of those. Uh, so there you go. Until next time. Uh, 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 there you go. Until next time, guys. Take care.
0: Visions are worth fighting
2: for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? A lot of weird flubs on my part today.
1: I mean, it happens. it happens. It
2: happens.